Hello and welcome. This is the Book of Acts by Word Online. So welcome back as we continue through series four and we're following Paul and Barnabas on their amazing first missionary journey. And we're now coming to a new phase in this journey. They've been traveling from city to city and we've seen incredible adventures uh, in cities like Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And now we're in chapter 14 towards the end of the chapter and they've traveled far and wide on their journey and now they're going to retrace their steps and go back to all the places that they have just been to and planted churches in. Series four is about the church developing in an area called Asia Minor, which we know as Turkey. The apostles, Paul and Barnabas, were sent out from the church in Antioch, in Syria, and we have followed their amazing adventures. Luke is telling us the story as the church's influence is expanding and at the moment the the reason it's expanding is the incredible energy and gift of the apostles themselves personally taking enormous risks, traveling significant distances, preaching in difficult circumstances, performing miracles and Uh, enabling small church communities to be established. And at the very end of our last passage, um, Luke says that uh, from Lystra, the city of Lystra, uh, Paul and Barnabas went to another city called Derbe. We don't hear very much about what happens in that city, but we will find that city mentioned as we start our short passage today, which is Acts uh, chapter 14. And we're going to read verses 21 to 25. That's the first part of our study today. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then... They returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. Well, this passage begins with just one sentence to describe the planting of a church. The city of Derbe is not described. We don't exactly know what happened. We just hear that Luke compresses the story into one sentence and it just says they won a large number of disciples. There's so much happening in the book of Acts that Luke hasn't got space to write the whole story. That's a very interesting point. He's always compressing the narrative. He's always focusing on the things that he wants to highlight. So that's just an amazing series of miracles in a city that we just don't know anything about. We know another church 
was planted. So by the time they have made this tour, and these cities are 40 or 50 kilometers apart, um, at once they've, once they've reached this point, a whole series of cities now have small Christian communities that have been established in the last few weeks or months. And at the particular point that they were at, they had a choice. If they went east, they had a relatively short journey to get back to their starting point Antioch in Syria. But they had to go west to go all and south to go back through all the cities they'd been through. They didn't take the easy option to say, we've planted those churches, we'll go home now. They took the difficult option, which is to say, we're going to go back to every place we've been. So they retraced their steps to every city. And that wasn't an accident. That was strategic. And this tells us something about church planting that will be applicable in many cultures in the world. Once you've established something, you need to consolidate and strengthen it, or it's at risk of failing or closing or collapsing. And so having reached this city of Derbe and been successful there, they return and they go to every single place. There's a community that's been established, but it's such a new community. It's fragile. These believers have only been believers for a short period of time. They've had hardly any teaching. And so we, we're interested in this episode to see what steps do Paul and Barnabas take to consolidate the church. What do you need to do to make a church steady and strong? And we need to bear in mind, of course, as we look at that, that these would be largely groups of people meeting in households. They didn't have any buildings. There were obviously no church buildings. They may have had very little access to public buildings. They would have been refused access to the Jewish synagogues because of the controversy that Paul had had with the Jewish community. And so they were largely meeting in homes or perhaps in outdoor meetings in public places uh, when the weather was suitable. So these are very newly formed, fairly informal groups of believers who've had a striking encounter with Jesus Christ through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, but otherwise have no foundations, no knowledge, no support network, no contact with any other Christians, a very low level of literacy. Most of them, apart from the Jewish members, had no knowledge of the Old Testament. So they were starting from a very small foundation of resources. What did Paul and Barnabas do to consolidate? Four things are in this passage. Number one, the first consolidation step is to make personal contact by visiting. Paul always wanted to visit again the places where he had been before. And when he couldn't visit, he had two other strategies of things that he did. 
he made personal contact uh, in later stages by sending a representative. And sometimes when he was in prison, he would send a representative. When he was in prison in Rome, he sent Timothy to Ephesus. He sent Titus to Crete because he couldn't go. So personal contact was really important. Either Paul himself with his team or some of his colleagues. Or if he, if he felt that he needed to have other personal contacts, his third strategy was to write a letter. This is interesting. New believers and emerging church community need personal contact with gifted leaders to help them get established. They need to be connected and Paul knew that and so he took time and on this occasion he had the opportunity to go in person. No one was stopping him, he wasn't in prison, he wasn't too far away, he was nearby, it was only a day or two's journey to get from one of these places to another and he could move relatively freely and so Paul his first step was to make personal contact. As we are nurturing new believers and new church communities, personal contact cannot be replaced by anything else. It strengthens their faith. The second step he took was, <coughs> in, was teaching. They, they were strengthening and encouraging the disciples, telling them to remain true to the faith. So with new believers, the other great need is teaching and encouragement. Many things discourage. Many things stand in the way of newfound faith. There are many temptations, many risks, many pressures from family and society. So they strengthened them with teaching, telling them, no doubt, that if you're saved, then it's not a temporary reality and God might, uh, God won't withdraw his blessing from you. You know, the Holy Spirit has come to live within you. No doubt they said, whatever circumstances you go through, God is faithful. No doubt they taught them about faith for God's provision, seek first the kingdom of God and all these material things will be added unto you. So they taught them many discipleship realities and they also taught them in the second step, no doubt, to keep evangelizing other people. The best way for the church to grow is for those who've become believers to quickly give themselves to the task of evangelism. That's a key principle and that's something that Paul was very committed to. In fact, his strategy, generally speaking, was to go to cities and urban areas in the expectation that in the years to come after he'd been there, the gospel would go into the surrounding community. And that's exactly what we see happen in some places, notably Ephesus, which we see a little bit later on in the book of Acts. So he would plant churches in urban communities and then they would be spreading out to the surrounding area. That was his vision. That's why he's almost always in a major city. So it would be these new believers who need to start telling their friends and the people who live in the countryside nearby and then new church communities could come from them. So step number one, 
personal visit, personal connection. Step number two, intensive teaching, basic teaching. And today, of course, we have access to resources for basic teaching for new believers online, in apps, in all sorts of different places, in books and in pamphlets. There's all sorts of different plans available. This is tremendously important, but Paul and Barnabas did it in person. They came and laid the foundations of a full understanding of the Christian faith. Well, they would have told them about the Old Testament and how important that is. They would have encouraged them to get a translation of the Old Testament that was available to them in, in the Greek language and say, somebody who can read well, why don't you get a copy and why don't you read it to the group? And they would have suggested some passages to read. The New Testament books hadn't been written by then. So we need to just imagine this incredible exercise of building up the church. And the third thing they did was they provided a prophetic perspective on discipleship. They made this interesting statement. <clears throat> we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? What on earth did they mean by that? They basically pointed out that when you become a Christian, there will be difficulties that will come your way fairly quickly. It might be persecution and opposition. It might be the fact you have to reorganize your life. There might be tensions in your family. There might be issues because you start giving money to the work of the kingdom. And pressures will come. It might be spiritual pressures from dark, evil forces trying to stop you moving forward. And what they were teaching here was if hardships happen, don't worry. You're entering the kingdom of God and they would have told them that the kingdom of God is going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back. Look to that point, keep that in mind while you're struggling with issues now. That's basically the background to that statement. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So they would have explained to them that the kingdom starts in them like a seed planted in the ground and it's going to keep growing and one day the kingdom will come to fulfillment but only when Christ comes. Until then it's going to be a challenging road. So here's the third thing they brought, a prophetic perspective on discipleship. They did not say if you become a Christian everything's going to be easy and you're going to be prosperous and successful and God's going to rescue from all your problems. That's what some people say today. And to those people, I challenge them to look at the scriptures. What did the apostles say? The apostles said that God's with you with power. He's going to do amazing things. Salvation is real and permanent. But this life is complex. And there are challenges. And we have to persevere. And the end result will be tremendous vindication and deliverance on the day that Christ comes. These are the foundations that disciples need. And the fourth step of consolidation is appointing leaders. Every community needs a leader. There's no point saying Paul is our leader here in the church in Lystra or Iconium. He's not going to be there for long. He's the founder along with Barnabas, but he's not the day-to-day -day leader and those two things are fundamentally different. The evangelist who brought you to Christ is not necessarily the leader of your church. 
And so Paul and Barnabas spent enough time in each of these small communities. We don't know how long they spent, but it must have been a reasonable time in order to be able to discern and evaluate which people, responsible men in the community, they could appoint to a role which is described here as elders in the church. Now, what do we mean by church elders? Well, there are three words in the New Testament to describe the leaders of a local church community. One is the word elder, which basically means community leader. Another is the word shepherd, which means pastor, someone who's caring for the church members. And the third one is overseer which basically means guardian and protector. So there's something about pastoral care, there's something about protection, and there's something about leading the community forward as a kind of father figure in that community. Those were the words that Paul used. And one of them is used here, the word elder, which means community leader. And this is drawn from the Jewish background. These three words, incidentally, are used in Acts 20 um, as Paul is having a meeting with a group of elders from the church in Ephesus. And they're described by those three terms in the same passage. And that gives us an insight into what role uh, Paul had in mind. And there'll be more about this topic in series six when we come and look in the early part of series six to the church in Ephesus. However, these leaders uh, were responsible men in the community and noticed that in each city they appointed a team. So we have now a very interesting idea in terms of New Testament church leadership that in a local church there's a team of leaders. And in many, many churches in our world today, churches are led by a single person. But the New Testament pattern would be a team of pastors, a team of elders, a team of overseers. And every team, of course, has a, a leader within that team, but they're sharing that general responsibility of guardianship, teaching, caring, and community leadership amongst the team. And we get glimpses of this in the book of Acts. We've already um, noticed that the Jerusalem church had elders who were separate from the apostles. We'll find out that the church in Ephesus had a group of elders. And so in the book of Acts, we see elders mentioned on a number of occasions, but this is a particularly interesting example because these people would have had personal maturity, but they would not have had the time to have developed a huge amount of knowledge of the Christian faith. But they were being given the responsibility to care for the community. And the qualifications for those people are described by Paul elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Timothy 3, and in Titus chapter 1, where he instructs his colleagues what to look for in people when you're appointing them as elders. And most of the qualifications are to do with character and lifestyle 
and function in community and function in family. Now, obviously, they would then have had a discussion with the church members about the proposals and there would have been an agreement between the apostles and the members. Uh, the Greek language that describes this process can be interpreted in a number of ways that suggest the involvement of the church community in the process. But also, interestingly, they prayed and even fasted, going without food to devote time to prayer. So this was an incredibly significant process to make sure these communities held together when Paul and Barnabas are gone and, and they, no one had any idea when and if they would ever return to these cities. These people really mattered and so they gave great attention to the appointment of elders and they prayed for them together with fasting. Now, <clears throat> If we look at Paul's teachings elsewhere, we'll notice that he describes two types of leaders in the local church. One are elders, overseers, or shepherds, the senior leaders, but also he describes deacons. For example, in Philippians 1 verse 1, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers or elders and deacons. So there were other leaders in churches who had responsibility for particular areas of its ministry that are not mentioned here, but would have developed within those churches as they did in other churches that Paul founded. So the elders don't do all the work. They don't have all the spiritual gifts. They don't run all the ministries of a church, but they are the guardians. They keep it together and they trust God to uh, create a strong and vibrant community. That was the role that Paul was calling these men into. So these were very significant meetings with these young believers. It would have had a huge impact on the church. They would have felt the love of Paul and Barnabas and they would have felt a security that their church was being cared for by responsible men in the community. And so we continue with our passage to the end of the chapter, verses 26 to 28. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Well, this whole process started in Antioch in chapter 13. And in the first few verses in chapter 13, the leaders of that church, the prophets and teachers, gathered to pray, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And here we have the end of the story. We don't know how long time, how much time has passed, months, many months has passed while they've been away. 
going to places that they've never visited before. And they come back now with tremendously good news for the church in Antioch. If you imagine yourself as a member of the church in Antioch, you've been praying week after week for Paul and Barnabas and you hardly hear anything about what they're doing. They've disappeared into another country. They've, they're going from city to city and now they come back and they tell you, we have through the grace of God established churches in about six cities in new provinces. We've created a whole new area of Christian ministry and outreach. How wonderful that would have been if you were a member of the church in Antioch to know that your prayers had been answered and also that Paul and Barnabas had arrived back safely. There was no guarantee of that. It was a dangerous mission. So what could we learn from this passage? Well, there are many things that probably come to your mind. A few things that I'd like to highlight by way of reflection. <clears throat> First of all, it's interesting to notice here a cycle. A cycle of intense activity and then rest. They stayed a long time in Antioch. They rested. They built up their strength. <clears throat> they were encouraged. The pressure was off for a bit. That's interesting. In terms of Christian mission, you have to build in times where you're trying to achieve certain targets and times where you are consolidating and resting. The same applies to us as individuals. We can't be on maximum energy and outputs and giving at all times. There have to be times of being built up. And Paul and Barnabas knew that. The second reflection I have is about the significance of effective local church leadership. Churches are being planted all over the world and maybe in your country this is going on very fast at the moment and many of them are being planted just on the basis of households. Households in villages and towns. And if that's happening, then we need to give attention to leadership within those new church communities. We need to be as concerned about that as Paul and Barnabas were here to make sure they consolidated those communities. And I want to conclude by just thinking for a moment about the church in Antioch in Syria, the sending church, the resource church, the large church, the giving church, the one that shares their most gifted leaders. These churches really matter. And in God's economy in all the nations of the world today, there will be churches which are resource churches, which have more resources than they need for their own well-being. And they can be incredibly strategic in the advance of the kingdom as they identify a mission field and put human resources, prayer and finance towards developing the kingdom. Maybe you're in one of those resource churches. I want you to see the connection between your type of church and the Antioch church that sent Paul and Barnabas. My final reflection is concerning prayer and fasting. Fasting is a very important biblical practice that Jesus mandated and made part of the discipleship culture in uh, Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And from my point of view, I consider fasting a central part of the Christian life, a regular practice. And it's noticeable here that this success story has two mentions of fasting and prayer. One at the beginning, when in Antioch, 
in Acts 13, verses 1 to 2, they were considering what God wanted them to do, and they prayed and fasted, and then they sent Paul and Barnabas off. But then Paul and Barnabas also had some fasting in the local church communities as they appointed elders. So fasting alongside prayer is crucial to hearing God's will and releasing his breakthrough into our lives. And the fasting recorded in this passage and in Acts 13 was significant in bringing about the incredible result that is described in this chapter, which is as follows. Paul and Barnabas have been to about six or more major cities in what we would call southern Turkey or Asia Minor. And without any other input from anybody else and without any visible support when they were there, they have established churches in all of those communities from nothing, from absolutely nothing. God has done a great miracle in this first missionary journey. And this is a template and an example of a process that will be repeated throughout the book of Acts and which is still relevant to the church today, where in our world many churches needed to be plant, need to be planted in many countries. And in order to have the vision and the energy to do that, we need the book of Acts, which tells us how the apostles did it. And this will motivate us and encourage us on that amazing journey. Thanks for listening and join us uh, shortly, hopefully, for the final episode in this series where something dramatic happens which looks like it's going to be a major setback, but then turns out uh, to be uh, overcome by great wisdom from church leaders. But let's uh, save that for next time. Hope to see you then. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.